Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to San Antonio's Voice Podcast. I'm Randy Beamer with News for San Antonio. Fascinating discussion today about San Antonio schools in the COVID era and how one district here is really trying to turn things around long-term with their schools. And joining us first is our assignment editor, Sal Del Cid. Sal? Hey, Randy. Today's guest is Pedro Martinez, the superintendent over at the SAISD. And Randy, he made it very clear that if and when his students go back to school on campus, it's going to be when Metro Health gives them the green light. And that bucks the trend a little bit because some districts around here kind of made up their minds a while ago. Anyway, you guys got into what that's going to look like. But then he got frank with you about the poverty level inside his district and what challenges his students have to overcome. So I thought it was interesting and thoughtful the way he explained his programs and how he placed them. Right, and turnarounds. And I guess he's already gotten the yellow light, you could say, not the green light, from Metro Health. They're going to go back 10% of the time. We get into details of COVID-19 and their back-to-school plan and how actually technology right now is helping that district do something it was going to take years to do. And we also get into the past about how, you know, he came here five years ago and really has been trying to turn around the district with new kinds of schools and different students coming in from all over Bear County. I think you'll find it interesting, at Pedro, and also his background, I should say, in accounting and poverty himself as one of 12 children. Fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening. San Antonio's Voice of Podcast. This is Superintendent of SAISD, Pedro Martinez. Well, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're incredibly busy right now. What is the biggest thing that you're working on with this opening, this crazy year right now? So, so I think for us, you know, we, we get a lot of opinions about opening schools, how we should open schools, should we open schools. And for me, it's not about if, but when and how. Uh, in other words, our, we know that in-person instruction is what all of our families are going to want eventually. The real question they're asking is, uh, when is it safe to do so? And what are we doing to make it safer? And so the approach we, we've adopted is, and it is our top priority, uh, we, were one of the, we were probably the first district in the, in the city and in the county to announce that we would work with Metro Health and we would follow their actual guidelines. And so they developed a system uh, where we have colors of red, yellow, and green, all driven by health metrics. We, were, we started in the red, uh, so this is our second week of the school year, fully remote. Uh, with very limited services for some of our special needs children, some testing services we're doing for our children. But other than that, all instruction is remote. Uh, yesterday, uh, I had Dr. Wu, and we did a parent town hall together, and she announced everyone that we have now hit the yellow level. With a, it, uh, below 10% in terms of positivity. So, the so what's, what's been great about our community is that our doubling time for cases, uh, we were aiming for uh, 18 to 20 days. We're now at 40 days. Uh, we're not only seeing a plateauing of, of new cases, uh, but now we're starting to see a consistent and even start, uh, the beginning of a, of a downtrend when you look at uh, averages, but it's just the beginning of it. The positivity testing rate was what we were looking for because we were at 21% not too long ago. We now have hit 9.9. So we actually hit yellow now this week. So what we are going to make sure, though, is that we stay at yellow. So it's not, you know, remember, when we look at data, we want to see that it stays there, not just that it hits for one day, because, again, our data, can we can go up and down. And so if it stays for the next two weeks, which we think it will, we will start in-person instruction September 8th, and we're going to, we decided in our district, we're going to do it at 10, in 10% increments. So we'll start at 10%, we'll wait two weeks, we'll bring in another 10%, at that point we'll do another town hall, 
if it looks like we're starting to approach the green level, which uh, means that positivity testing has to go below 5%. So mm -hmm. right now we're at 99 So we haven't been at below 5% uh, since, I think, March. Right. So just to give you a sense of how far we have to go, then we could build up to 50%. And so the goal is to do it in 10% increments. We're prioritizing right now our children with special needs, our children that are the most at risk, and our youngest children, so pre-K to second grade. And one of the reasons, one of the things that we're seeing, as a, and I'm starting to see this as a pattern across uh, our country, is that families with very young children, uh, right now, they're staying put. In other words, what they're saying is, it's too much hassle right now to try to get my child to be uh, to go online. Uh, I, a lot of them are frontline workers, and so they need to go to work. And so you know they might have uh, auntie or, gra or, or grandma taking care of the child or, or some other relative. It's just too difficult, and a lot of them are waiting for in-person instruction. And so, but they're wanting to make sure that it's safe. Mm -hmm. Now, back in June and July, I guess when or May and June, when things looked good, uh, as I understand it, maybe two thirds of the people wanted to get back in school and then when things got bad in July the numbers flipped and maybe two-thirds of the people wanted to stay home. Is that what you're seeing in the San Antonio school district? So what's district? interesting is our, our most recent uh, parent survey and declarations, uh, we went from 80% of our children wanting, our, student, our parents wanting to come in person down to 25%. So with 70% wanting to be online. But when I look at the data a little, cl a little closer, when it comes to our youngest children, our, you know, we have the largest pre-K program in the county, 5,000 children. We're, double, we're more than double the size of pre-K for SA. What I'm seeing with our youngest families is more than half right now are waiting for in-person instruction. And so, but when it's safe. And so, as you can imagine, as a, and what we're telling parents, we want to honor your, 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 first of all, your comfort level because we may have children that might have underlying health conditions those families are going to wait a lot longer than families who feel more confident about coming in. But even then, they want to make sure that they understand our safety guidelines. They want to make sure they understand the PPNE. Uh, and then we have to work together with parents to make sure that we can enforce those guidelines because, you know, uh, anybody who's been, a, you know, if you've worked with three and four-year-olds and five-year-olds, uh, me, myself, being a parent of a nine-year-old and six-year-old, it is challenging uh, in the best of times, as we look at, uh, you know, just helping children just learn structures and routines. And are, so, you, are you looking forward to that already? And how, how have you seen it go across the country with keeping kids masked up and away from each other? How? So, so there's a couple of lessons that we're seeing, not only from districts around the country, but also uh, districts, uh, really countries around the world. Uh, we have seen that, first of all, a phased-in gradual approach is the right way to do it. So when you've seen institutions that bring in a lot of adults and children all together, all at once. Uh, again, it's just very difficult to implement guidelines, safety guidelines, as well as procedures that are needed just for people to stay safe. Social distancing, mask requirements, uh, the regular hand washing. Uh, so those are difficult when you have a lot of people all at once. A couple of districts in the area have already had challenges with, you know, close to 200 people exposed in one of the area districts. Um, because they did come back more at one time, or possibly because of that. Are you looking at that closely and seeing what would you do if you had an outbreak? And so, and so for us, the, 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 the decision to start gradual in 10% increments is driven by what we're learning from other places. And, and by spreading those increments over a two-week period, it allows us to really understand in a campus uh, you know, making sure that our children feel good about the safety guidelines, that our parents feel good, that our staff feel good. If there's an outbreak, we feel it gives us enough time to pivot. Mm 
Uh, and the way we're, and some of the lessons we've learned is to create pods. In other words, really uh, ensure that children are, you know, that there's a limited number of adults that are in, intera interacting with each other and the children together. So that way, if we have uh, one case, we, know, we can trace immediately. We know where it's happening. We can immediately uh, quarantine those individuals. Again, we'll have a remote learning plan in place so that whether it's our staff or our children, they'll still be able to be able to enjoy academics. But more importantly, we can make sure people get tested. We can make sure we see that we minimize the spread. Uh, and so our belief is that by doing this incrementally, spreading every two weeks, because that's also what our health professionals are saying, uh, give yourself two-week increments to really study in case you do have an outbreak. So again, time will tell. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now, we're barely on the second week of school. In-person instruction will start in that small 10% September 8th. When you look at coming in with those small groups, parents wonder, okay, are they going to still be in the same classroom that they were, with the same kids that they were in the virtual world? Is the teacher going to teach both? Is the teacher split off? Are you going to have a different teacher? How will that work? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, in our first phase, we're limiting no more than four to six children per classroom. So even though we are prioritizing our special needs, our, our pre-K to second graders, in any one classroom, you, would now, you, will not be able, you will not walk in and see more than four to six children. Uh, and so that's one, one. And so that will guarantee us that we can achieve social distancing. We'll have our centers. We've already uh, have dividers, and so we have, for example, we've measured every single room in our tables that are not six foot long. We actually have dividers that parents will be able to see, and they're clear. And so the children can interact with each other, but there's a clear divider. So as they're sitting apart from each other, uh, we're making sure that again that that safety guideline is in place. In addition, really what we want is our teachers to get just to st work with the children on routines. So one of the things you'll know, you'll know, uh, you'll, uh, parents know with our pre-K to second grade teachers, I always say that they walk on water because they can do things that parents just have never figured out how to do. How do you help children learn routines, right? And how do you, how do you get them used to structure? That's what our teachers are the best at. And so for us, what I want is just to give them enough time with small numbers of children so that they can be comfortable. So we have a face shield, for example, for every pre-K to second grade. We have 16,000. Uh, there are these cute hats. Uh, we, have, we have a different color for every grade. We'll recommend masks. Of course, for children that are older, masks will be required. Uh, but we'll have face shields for every child because, again, we know that's a lot easier to manage. Mm -hmm. and, we'll, and we'll recommend masks, and we'll work with parents uh, because we know if we have both, it just, gives, it just increases the safety. When those classes are four to six, is that one teacher just working with those four to six? That's right. So, so, so imagine a classroom that's on average 600 square feet, uh, and you have four to six children, one, one teacher, uh, and we'll have, uh, and, and then as the numbers grow, we'll also have our aides there. But again, the limit will be when we get into the green level, we won't exceed more than 10 to 12 children. But those uh, teachers are going to be just with the four to six and not also with the, the kids that have been online. So what we're going to be doing, so, so we, we are, those are the academic plans that our schools are building. So the great thing is our remote learning plan is in place now. Uh, and, and I really want to thank our parents because uh, we were able to get them passwords and logins and our systems, I mean, they're very robust. And so right now, it, it is a full instructional day, so it's a lot for parents. Uh, but the good news is we have academic coaches, curriculum specialists that are all supporting the academic plan. So while our teachers are starting to receive children in person, we have an entire infrastructure, an entire team that can continue and support the remote learning. And so uh, what, school, what we're empowering schools to do is to develop those academic plans because as they're phasing in children, you will see some teachers that might be focused just on, on remote learning. 
other, while other teachers are, are really gradually focusing on in-person instruction, you will see some teachers that want to do both. So, for example, a pleasant surprise for me was uh, we offered teachers the opportunity to buy uh, for us to buy them special equipment where you could have four to six children, up to ten eventually, in your classroom while you have another uh, set of children that are learning online. Uh, and we have a special equipment that actually follows them, uh, including their voice. And, and so, so we offer that as, as uh, just to say, you know, what teachers would be interested. Sixty percent of our teachers were interested in that equipment. Wow. So they'll be teaching both. That's what, what I was wondering is, okay, if I worry about my kid going back to school, is he suddenly going to have to switch teachers? So 60 percent of our teachers would like to try to keep their children together. So what we hear a lot from our teachers is, as, as they're de- developing their relations with children, they want to keep their children. And so, so what we said, though, is, again, for our teachers, we will have plenty of support still so that because it's very difficult to manage both. So even that, we want to do it in a gradual way. But what I want to assure parents is we have a team, a team of experts in every subject area that are helping teachers prepare lesson plans, that will help teachers there to provide any support teachers need so that as we're leveraging both virtual and in-person, uh, the infrastructure's in place. And the, in, uh, or the virtual learning is so different now than it was in the spring. Why is it? Because you bought some, uh, well, everybody is into a different platform. You have Canvas, some have Schoology. Uh, how is it working? So, uh, you know, we, we purchased uh, Canvas, uh, and, w- you know, I have two children myself that I can see what they're doing. It is so much more robust. And, and one of the things we wanted to assure parents is that the level of rigor was going to be consistent whether it was in person or online. Uh, for many of our families, one of the things we heard quite a bit was they were worried to make sure that the rigor was going to be in place, even though, you know, for some of our younger families, it did say that, you know, they were worried about the quantity of work. So we're trying to achieve that balance. There is there's no magic formula for that. It really is us working with the families. One of the lessons that we learned also is a lot more support for parents. So, for example, we have training classes that have been going on since last week, and they've all been full of parents learning Canvas, learning some of our other applications, uh, and we're going to continue those. We also have, uh, just uh, last night we showed on our website, uh, just thousands of resources that are in place right now on the website just to help parents, uh, and those will continue. We have technical teams that not only support families on the technical side with passwords, logons, you know, all of our schools are open for distribution for devices and hotspots, but we also have teams in place just to provide support academically for parents. Uh, so for us, we're learning as we go. So the only thing I ask parents, again, in week two, give us give us the opportunity to continue to get better and stronger in supporting you. And a lot of that is really us just get, getting feedback from parents and listening to parents. How about high school students? You have a lot of magnet schools, middle and high school, and specialized classes. What are the challenges there of keeping kids immersed with virtual learning? So one of the lessons we learned during spring break is that our secondary students do the best uh, in a remote learning mode. And so, for example, right off the bat, we saw well over 90% of our high school students participating actively in our classes, even last week. And so for us, the main, the main challenge for us is how do we ensure that that instruction is engaging, that it's interesting to the students. Uh, you know, our older students tend to be te- technology natives. They actually, a lot of them love the flexibility because we record every class. So for some of our students who, for whatever reason, need to miss a period, but then, you know, they want to see it later on, they can see that. And so for us, uh, what we're learning as we go along is how do we, again, 
keep them engaged? How do we balance the workload? Because it is a lot for students. So for example, my high school students might have eight different teachers. Uh, and so we, so we said, okay, let's, let's not overload them. So maybe we'll have four classes on, on A day, which maybe is Monday. We'll have the other four classes on B day, which is Tuesday, so that we can really allow them to, again, just, you know, again, just to keep up. Uh, and so those are the lessons that we're still learning. I, I'll tell you, my biggest concern is more our younger children. What I'm seeing more and more is that our younger children are the ones that struggle the most, uh, just staying focused and being online. And I think all of us as parents know this. Children want to, you know, they'll watch a movie for two or three hours. Mm-hmm. They don't want to. They don't want to be in economics for two or three hours. Like Do you tell t- uh, parents to be in the room with them? So what we tell parents, in fact, we, we actually are trying to say the opposite. <laughs> We're actually no. trying to tell parents for younger children. Some of our parents feel like they have to sit with their children. Uh, and we, what we're asking parents to do is please, you know, allow the teachers to work work with their child by themselves because, again, some of these uh, are routines and structures that we're, that we're helping the children with. And so it, it's hard, and I get it as a parent myself. Uh, if I'm seeing my six-year-old, you know, either not being focused or, or just, you know, being distracted, the first thing I want to do is I want to sit with her and say, okay, Alina, how do, we, how do we make sure that we're listening to our teacher? So, so we're, you know, it's early. It's only the second week, but those are some of the things we want to work with parents on, how to help children be more independent. What are you finding out from last spring and now that you can use after the pandemic? I've heard some kids do better with this kind of learning. There's less bullying for some kids. What are you going to put in place, you think, after this that you struck you like, wow, that's, that's not a bad way to teach? So, you know, if you would have asked me uh, pre-spring break, will there be a time when uh, every child in the district will have a device? In, in some cases, multiple devices, a Chromebook, uh, an iPad. Uh, that they will be able to get them a hotspot to get internet access, I would have said, well, give us about three years. <laughs> give us about two to three years. We're, we're building a blueprint for that. We did it in a matter of weeks. And so what's going to stay forever, uh, and, and especially this is one of the reasons our board approved uh, the ballot questions, one of them is a the technology, is what we want to stay forever is that every child going forward in our district should always have a device they can take home. They should always have uh, the ability to access the internet uh, we have a rich, rich library of resources. Uh, I think it's a little overwhelming for parents, but now with Canvas, it's just a, we, we've organized it in a way that's much easier for, for our families. And so what I see staying is leveraging that type of, uh, that type of content because, for example, we know, especially in a, in a community like ours, we have a lot of high-poverty families, a lot of single-parent households. So our children, uh, they miss school because they have to go to the doctor or sometimes they have to take care of a younger sibling. Uh, and our parents don't have uh, other resources. And so one of, the, one of the great advantages is learning doesn't have to stop. They can actually, they'll have their device, they can access learning from wherever they're at, and then we're working with the city to ensure that the, that the access they have to the internet is more stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even hotspots, they have their limitations. And so that's, that's an, you know, more Well, that's one of the things you've been working on. And you talk about a high poverty district. You have, what, 99%? Um, I don't know how you measure 99% in terms of that qualify for the student free lunch program? So, so we have the third highest poverty in the entire state of Texas. Uh, when you look at poverty overall in the county, one of the things I like to remind our community, we have almost 70% of, of the poverty in the entire county. So when in you think... the San Antonio School District. In the Bear, yes. So our district, when you look at Bear County as a county, and imagine over 300,000 students, we have over almost 70% of the, of the poorest families in our district. 
uh, all because of segregation and, and, and just issues in the past. And so for us, uh, we're very sensitive to that. And so, you know, again, half of my families are, are single-parent households. Uh, the average, the median income in my district is $30,000, whereas the county and state average is 60000 By the way, that's also the national average. And so for us, uh, you know, like I said, one of the things that we have, you know, been very, um, very sensitive to is the, during these COVID times, the basic needs of our families are higher than ever. So, for example, we started with seven food distribution sites after spring break. Within three days, we had to triple that number. We went to close to 30. And then that wasn't enough. So we actually started, uh, we called SISD Eats, like Uber Eats, where we started delivering food to apartment complexes. And we had over 60 delivery uh, 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 sites that, that, we, that we created. And, and those have continued. In fact, we've served over 2 million meals between the spring break and the summer. And so now that we started school, all of our schools are now open for meals. So our families, and in their schedules, we actually build in times for families to have time to go pick up meals. Mm -hmm. Because during these times, uh, again, basic needs are more important than ever. Well, you bring up statistics like that. It's one of the things I'd like to pivot to talking about how data-driven you have been since you came here in 2015. Uh, that it isn't just people who qualify for the student lunch program, which is really the only way that you split up students in the past. Uh, across the you know across the districts, but why did you get so far down into or how did you get so far down into the into the weeds in terms of you have different blocks as you call them of income and you you i don 't want to say you treat them differently, but you are very aware of the poverty levels within the district it 's so, not just that all of them are ninety nine percent and below, and so you treat them the same. Yeah, what's, what's fascinating about uh, how we measure poverty in, our dis in, in education, it's based on free and reduced lunch. So, for example, in a family of four, two parents, two children, if their median income is uh, $40,000, $45,000, they still qualify for free and reduced lunch. And the more children you have, the, the higher your income could be. So, t so you could be at the median, national median of 60000 if you have enough children and still qualify. The challenge is that when I came to San Antonio and I started walking the neighborhoods, um, I was just um, surprised uh, with just the, the density of poverty and the level of poverty. And, it, and I thought I understood poverty, being myself a child who grew up in poverty from Mexico, growing up in Chicago, mm -hmm. and I thought, I understand poverty. When I came to San Antonio, it just looked different. In and, the San Antonio School District? In, in our district, uh, yeah. in the neighborhoods that we serve. And so we started looking at median income uh, because we said, you know, we really need to flush this out a little bit more because somebody who is a two-parent household uh, and has a median income of forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, even if they qualify for free and reduce, is different than a single mom who maybe is making $12,000 a year because, by the way, 6,000 of my children live in public housing. Median income is $12,000. Uh, we have 3,000 children that are homeless. And so we said poverty can look very different. Uh, and then when I started walking the neighborhoods, uh, you know, you start seeing the differences in the housing and in the, the lack of infrastructure. And so we, so we looked at uh, two-parent households because half of my families were, were single-parent households. So we said, let's make that a factor, median income. And then, you know, we started creating these, these amazing diverse by design schools. These are schools that, uh, you know, that you don't test in, uh, but we started, you know, creating, we, you know, really having diver just diverse set of families coming to our schools in terms of income. So I have schools where the children of lawyers and doctors and professors are next to children that might be in foster care, that might be homeless, in the same classroom. And these are open enrollment schools where you bring in, you talk about diverse backgrounds, diverse kids from different areas 
they're of their county. They're open enrollment, uh, and in fact, we've we've went from uh, less than five choice programs when I started to now almost forty. And these programs are all over our district, whether it's international baccalaureate, dual language programs, uh, single gender schools, and we're attracting a lot of families. But what I saw was, uh, you know, I said, okay, so does the educational level of the parents, does that make a difference? And we said, we think it does. And so that was another factor that we added as part of our block system. And then we added, you know, housing. You know, do they own their own home? Because I saw, we see significant amount of movement of families going from one neighbor to another. So that block system was actually adopted by the state. Yeah, now the block system, what does that mean? So, our, so we use census blocks. So we have about 300, over 300 census blocks that we looked at at these four measures. So median income, whether it's a two-parent household or a single-parent household, the, the educational level of the adult and whether they own their own home. And so we have them, and so we have them in quartiles. So our bottom quartile is our, is our poorest of the poor. So we, we have it in color-coded. These are families that have a median income of less than $20,000, single-parent households. They don't own their own home. Educational level is very low of the adults. Some of them didn't even graduate from high school. All the way up to our block one, uh, which is a top quartile, which is uh, these are families that have a median income of over $40,000. Uh, they actually have, uh, they own, a lot of them own their own home. It's usually two-parent households and more education. And so, so for us, what we use this block system for, and again, this, our state adopted it so that now it's statewide. Uh, but we use it for, for example, in our, in our choice programs, we block uh, almost half the seats just for our poorest families. And then we also ensure that families from, the, from those neighborhoods also have priority. So that as we're developing these programs, because we have a lot of families that want to come, we wanted to make sure we still serve, uh, we prioritize those children. We also use it to look at uh, how we allocate social workers, how we ensure that we have additional food uh, partnerships with food pantries and communities and schools. So a lot of services that, you know, our teachers, we want them to focus on academics. But these other needs, if we don't, if we don't uh, support them, it gets in the way of academics. And, and so these, these choice campuses that you talk about, we would in the past maybe have called them magnet schools. That's right. Um, how many do you have and what kinds of things do they focus on? So we, we went from, like I said, under five. Uh, when I first started, now we have almost 40. Uh, 40. 40 choice programs. And so every, what we do every year is we open up the choice seats. Uh, it starts uh, right after Thanksgiving. And we open up seats, and we have it's open enrollment, so anybody can apply. Nobody's tested in. It's all a lottery system. But again, within that system, we prioritize our highest poverty families and families from that specific neighborhood. And one of the things that we're doing is we're saying, so you know, I learned this in my in my almost six years here, is that depending on where you live in the city, you don't have to come and visit my neighborhoods. So I had to live in the north side for a very short time um, because we were renovating a house that we bought in in our district. And uh, so I was on the northwest side. And when I was there, I didn't have to go anywhere. My shopping was all there. The schools were right Everybody's there. Everybody's in a bubble. Everybody's in a bubble. <laughs> and so, so I learned from that. And so many of our choice programs, our most innovative programs, we put them in schools that force people to come to those neighborhoods. So, for example, our Young Men Leadership Academy, one of my most top-performing schools, it's an all-boys school. It's at Wheatley, the old Wheatley Middle School. And why? Because... I wanted families to come to the east side and see that, look, it's not like people are killing each other every day because sometimes that's, that's what you get a sense of from the media, right, or just from stories you hear. No, it's a safe neighborhood. A lot of nice housing has come up. Uh, we have the Advanced Learning Academy at Euclid, which was the old Austin Academy. When Austin, uh, Austin Academy was in place, our enrollment was under 200 students pre-K to 8th grade. 
we set it up for pre-K to third grade at the Advanced Learning Academy. The waiting list is so, we're already at, we're more than 300 students. I can't put another child in that building because of fire code reasons, and I have a waiting list that's almost now, that when you, high. When you call it the Advanced Learning Academy, what changed from what it was before? So what we did is uh, a lot of these innovative schools, uh, we have set up partners. So at the Advanced Learning Academy, we partner with Trinity University. All the curriculum is, a, is customized, and what, we, and what we've done is, is created a school that works with children at their level. So, mm-hmm. so the grades, for, so for example, uh, many of the children, uh, the, the grades inter, inter, in, um, intersect. So for example, if you're a kindergartner, you would interact with first, grade, uh, first graders and maybe even second graders. And so for some of our children that are really advanced, they might be doing first grade math as a kindergartner, or a first grader might be doing second grade math. And if a child's struggling in any one subject, they might be doing work at a level that's just below that, mm-hmm. but you. But it does. There's no stigma to it because it's mm-hmm. just it's part of the school. And you have master teachers. People might not understand what's a master teacher and what do they do. So one of the things I'm very proud of is that uh, uh, in my first year we were able to get the largest federal grant ever that our district uh, gotten over 45 million dollars. Uh, from uh, and we and we we created what we call a master teacher initiative. So these are our strongest teachers, our expert teachers. Um, who uh, have a track record, uh, we pay them more, they work more hours and more days. And so then when we passed, back in 2016, we passed the TRE, uh, we, we, we combined both funding so that TRE we... TRE is? Uh, tax ratification election. So, right. so our community supported us on a tax increase that we used to also uh, expand the master teacher initiative. So now across our entire district, we have expert teachers that we have at every school uh, that, that really work, the one are recognized for their track record, but more importantly, are, are becoming our leads in professional development for other teachers. Uh, they lead sessions. They also work with some of our children that struggle the most. And, and it's helped me retain our best teachers uh, in, uh, so, you know, and also as well as attract a lot of teachers. Another important thing for our community to know, that program was adopted by the state. And so the state now has a program similar, uh, and there they actually have three designations. Master teachers, by the way, is the highest, right? So no coincidence. And they have two other designations. Uh, and we, so uh, and the state put a billion dollars with a B towards this initiative. Do those master teachers sometimes work alongside the other teachers, especially in situations like this when kids are coming back? Absolutely. So our master teachers work with all of our other teachers. And like I said, they're really, I would, I, I would look at them as teacher leaders. They're teacher leaders in their schools. Um, and then and we have, again, we're, we have rigorous criteria. So teachers are working to get to that level. And so what we've done also is just put a lot of support for our teachers. So, for example, uh, for our, uh, our remote learning plan, it was our master teachers that came together across every grade level, across every subject, that created the first set of lesson plans for other teachers to be able to build from. When you came here, what was it like? Uh, because it was, you know, this is the highest poverty district and a lot of pressure from businesses um, because it's downtown, but people didn't want to move here. I, I'm sure you've heard that. Oh, I don't want to go to that district. You know, realtors telling people, I don't want to go to that district because the schools aren't as good as X district. How tough was that to try to turn around? So, so you know, what I, when I came here, what I saw was uh, very low expectations. Um, it wasn't that staff weren't trying. Uh, you know, it, it was, there was, there was a, an absence of uh, both high expectations and I would say even a, a clear vision. And so one of the things that, that I was able to do is, is really bring our board together have heart-to-heart talks, 
I must have had at least 200 different meetings with community members, business leaders, both in groups and in one-on-ones. And one of the things that we were able to do is just come up with a united vision and, and really ask some tough questions about what has been happening in our community, why are things are the way they are. Uh, I pushed the city and the county around why is economic development not being more balanced in this community. Uh, we, uh, I met Christine Drennan from Trinity University, who, um, who I got her, I got to see a presentation of the history of segregation and poverty in San Antonio, got her to go do the circuit. Uh, we first brought her to, uh, I remember this, we brought her to a, a library at one of our comprehensive high schools. I invited the city manager, the, the mayor, all the city council, mm-hmm. leaders across the community, and that started the conversation about equity. That started, and this was five years ago, mm-hmm. started the conversation. Before the council how, got into it. And so to the credit of the mayor and to the council, they eventually adopted an equity agenda. Um, and so for us, and now we've seen five years later, economic development across our entire, our entire district in such a way that now, because of the development, going forward, we will never have to increase tax rates for bonds in the future. Because downtown, there's so much development downtown. Uh, some of the condos in, in the area and Broadway and south of the courthouse. Well, look at Frost Tower. Uh, Frost Tower, I remember uh, when my early presentations, um, I just had a, a, you know, sort of a, a caricature of Frost Tower because it wasn't built yet. And I said, look what's coming, Hemisphere Park. Uh, but now, you know, go down Broadway Street. You can see the amount of construction that's going on. Uh, a lot of development in downtown, a lot of development in the east side. And so you're starting to see it spread out. And so what's happening... And the tax base goes up. Tax bases went up. And because of that, uh, and, and those taxes now can benefit the community locally through bonds. Uh, because right now what happens in our district is we our rates are starting to go down. Tax rates are actually starting to go down. Uh, and that's going to continue in the foreseeable future because a lot of the money now that's being collected for property taxes, I'm literally collecting it and giving it right to the state. And that's why you're looking at a bond issue of more than a billion dollars and saying that voters won't have to have a higher tax rate? That's right. So, so our bonds will have no impact on tax rates going forward. And in mm-hmm. fact, that money right now, so when Frost Tower pays their property taxes, I collect it and I give it right to the state. And so what, what the only legal way that we have to keep that money local is through our bonds. And so one of the things that, that I want our community to know is that I have been harping since day one about economic development in our community. And now we're seeing that. And what's great now is these resources can be reinvested back to create more jobs, to, to spur the economy, especially in these times when we went from under a 4% unemployment rate to now over 10%. And it's up many of our many of our families that are disproportionately hit in our community. Uh, and so, imagine if we can bring in construction jobs and other related jobs uh, to to revive this economy. And so, so I'm just proud that we're in a position now where not only you know am I seeing the cranes? I used to joke about not seeing any cranes in our community. Well, now I see them, but now it's also an opportunity for us to reinvest in our community. In the past, before you got here, there was a drain of students, of families, of population from the center city, the south side, different areas, and the sprawl was going to the north side. So you'd see the northeast, northwest, or north side school districts building, 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 trying to keep up with the demand, numbers of schools, closing schools in some districts, including San Antonio School District. How much has that changed, or has it? So for us, uh, one of the things I'm very proud of is the reason we have 40, almost 40 option programs now 
it, it was really, it forced us, you know, what was happening with the additional competition, with so many families wanting to move north, it forced us to reinvent ourselves. And, we're, and it's a process, so we're not fully there. Uh, so we're, we've made a lot of progress. We had the largest achievement gains in, in the school year ending 2019. Our commissioner came and said that publicly. Uh, we went from an F district to being a B district. We've created a lot more options for families, and it's still a work in progress. Uh, but I will say that what, what's happening in our community now is that uh, over time our schools becoming, are becoming schools of choice uh, for families. I'm seeing more families coming from other districts. I'm starting to see some families move into our district. That's the long-term goal. Uh, but we have a ways to go there, and really there I need the support of the entire community because we've got to create better housing options, affordable housing options, uh, especially for, for our teachers uh, because, you know, you, know, it, it, you know, I would love for more of our teachers to yeah. live in our district. I've talked to different people in areas of towns, east side as well as, uh, well, different areas, all, all parts of town, where there are smaller houses, the neighborhood is getting older, and not even that much older, say 20, 30 years ago. But those because they're getting older, people are moving out. Younger people are moving out. They're graduating from schools here. They're moving to the north side. Their parents are staying in these districts, in those houses, but they're not having, you know, there's not as many kids in your district. Are you seeing that, the aging population in parts of your district? Yeah, what's interesting is we do definitely see families, especially when I first started, I saw a big movement going north. Uh, we could literally look at thousands of families uh, moving north. And so what our options have done is we started bringing back families, including families that live north, actually coming to our district. Uh, the challenge is balancing the needs of our local neighborhoods because, again, I don't want those children to be shut out. And so that's why we prioritize with our lottery system children who live in poverty and, and children in the neighborhoods. Uh, but longer term, um, I really believe that we can keep families here uh, but but we need to create better housing options, and so so we can balance it. We've been able to balance it right now. But I was seeing what you what you mentioned, which is I was seeing families fleeing north, um, and because of that, you know, you saw more and more schools needed north. Where I'm starting to see now a balance, uh, but I, longer term, and I'm talking five to ten years. If we want to keep those families here, we've got to create housing options for them. Was that in your mind at the beginning that you wanted to maybe increase the school population? by these uh, magnet schools, open enrollment schools, or was it just kind of a byproduct of what you were doing? No, no, it, it was absolutely what our plan was. So what, what I saw, uh, you know, I, I just believe as a leader you have to be a problem solver. And so what I saw coming into the district is not only increasing increased competition from charter schools, and I welcome that competition. Again, anything that makes us better, I welcome. But I also saw families moving north. And that for me, and that has been going on since the 1960s and 70s. And so that trend has been, continued, and it was accelerating. And so for that reason, and, and, and you can't blame them. I mean, you go, if you want to, as a family, if you want to go find where things are at, just hit 281, go north, right? Just hit I-87, I-10, uh, go north, right? And so, and so that's where everything is at. And, and so that's really hard for me to fight. So what I said was, well, what if schools become a reason for families to want to come? And so we started with, for example, our Young Man Leadership Academy that we opened up in my first year, and we put it on the east side on purpose. And then I had Austin Academy that we uh, partnered with Trinity University that said, I want to create in Fox Tech, uh, which were both un underutilized buildings. I said, what if we create a different type of school, uh, customized to children based on their levels, some advanced, some that might be below grade level. And so fast forward, we now have the largest international baccalaureate program, second only to Houston in the state. 
We have the largest dual language program, uh, second only to Austin, and, and, and they started way sooner than us, but we have the fastest growing in the state, one of the biggest in the country. Uh, and again, multiple models. The first Montessori school, uh, Steele Elementary School uh, in the south side. Again, a building that had been closed. We reopened it. They now have an, a waiting list where I could double that school tomorrow if I had the space. And businesses have helped support you, as you mentioned, Trinity. But they have also a vested interest in the San Antonio Independent School District, especially in the downtown center city area. I, I really believe this, and I said this from day one. You cannot have a, a vibrant city if its namesake is struggling. Because, uh, and, and I have a lot of respect for my colleagues, kudos to, nor to Northeast and to Northside. They've done a lot of good work academically. But you cannot have a vibrant city if its flagship school district, its namesake, is struggling. And that's what I saw. Uh, if you want families to move to San Antonio, if you want businesses to move to San Antonio, it doesn't work unless, unless we're successful. Our community heard that. Our business community heard that. Since day one, I have nothing but support from, from our chambers. You know, the best evidence is in 2016. Every industry group, every, all of our chambers endorsed our bond and our tax, our TRE tax ratification election. In that election, we increased tax rates significantly. And we had over 70% approval of the bonds uh, of both uh, ballot questions. In my voting precincts, I was humbled. Every voting precinct overwhelmingly supported either one or both, uh, or both uh, uh, ballot questions. Only one was split. <laughs> so in other words, both, uh, almost all, 99% supported both overwhelmingly. And that to me just showed me, and, and I see that it was just great timing. In other words, our community was ready for change. I just happened to be blessed to, be, to come uh, at that time. They were ready for that, and so that's what I'm still seeing. How about the bond issue timing now in the pandemic when people are having trouble? Even if you say our tax rate is not going to change because of this, do you see some people just nervous about, well, I don't know, why should we be spending, spending in quotes, a billion dollars right now during the pandemic when I have lost my job? Absolutely, and, and, and it's one of the things that my board and I really struggle with. So they, when they created their Blue Ribbon Task Force, uh, and this was, this was 24 members coming from all over, uh, some were business leaders, some parents, uh, some just community leaders. And, and, and those were some of the conversations that we had was, can our community, is, is this the wrong time? Is our community, is our community just struggling so much right now that this would be, this would not be a good idea? As our uh, Blue Ribbon Task Force members started visiting buildings and, building, and visiting schools, and they started seeing, for example, that these buildings, uh, many of them were, had not had renovations in at least 20 to 30 years. Uh, AC systems that were so outdated that they don't even make the parts anymore. We have to literally make them ourselves. Airflow systems that even in the period of COVID, um, you know, we're having to spend a significant amount of dollars just to make sure the airflow is safe for our children. Um, and when they saw that, they said, this, is, this need is too great. And then when we shared with them our, our uh, analysis of tax rates and the fact that our tax rates have actually been declining the last few years, and, our, and, and just the, the projections that we have for the future, which are very conservative, they're the ones that came to us and said, you've got to do this. Um, and so for us, uh, again, it's still something that, you know, uh, you know uh, we have a, a, a group of community members that are leading this effort. They will make that case to us, to the community. But um, you're confident it'll be, it'll be passed. Well, you know, like I said, I, I always want our community to make us prove ourselves. You know, let, let us prove to you, uh, one, our academic success. Uh, again, we have videos of every, every one of the sites that our, our Blue Ribbon Task Force visited. Our, our community can see it for themselves. 
Uh, and again, you know, you know, that's the, I think well, that's what's right to do is to show them the information and they can make that decision. How about now that are you seeing the socioeconomic integration uh, with people coming from different parts of town? And how is that changing the kids' education? So, you know, it's fascinating. Um, so first of all, I just believe that strong academics, regardless of whether your child lives in poverty or is, is a child that is blessed to have a middle-income family, um, you know, it, you have to have strong academics no matter what. Um, what's, what really what we're doing is just changing the narrative around, first of all, who we are as a district, that we will have, we will have high quality ex, uh, options, uh, that we have high expectations for our children and customizing programs that benefit all children. So the strategies that we're using are not strategies, for example, that didn't exist 10, 20, 30 years ago. International baccalaureate programs have been in existence for decades. In fact, our military families, when, when they go abroad, guess what they get access to? International baccalaureate programs. They're some of the best in the world. Uh, our programs around single gender, uh, we might do them a little bit different, but these are programs that have existed for a long time. Our, you know, our expansion, for example, of dual credit, uh, so more of our, 40% of our high school students now have access to college credit, uh, and, and the goal is to expand that uh, every year. And so we've been getting more and more support. So our strategies are, are strategies that have been in existence. The difference for us is to, is to customize them for children who live in poverty, and then to create schools that are not so segregated in poverty that you just create so many challenges against those schools. And so for us, you know, one of my questions to our middle class families who have been wanting to come, I've asked, I've asked them, I said, tell me why would you want to come to this school, you know, whether it's ALA, whether it's Twain Dual Language, our Montessori school, uh, all the different 40 options. Why, why would you want to come to school when you, have, when you can go in somewhere else? Some of these families are coming from private school. And they said, you know, Pedro, I want my child to grow up in a world where they can see what the world really is. Because otherwise, we're in our little cocoon, and my children will think that the world is this way, and then when they get out there, they're going to be shocked. And so for me, I give a lot of credit to our families that they want their children to be well-balanced. Well and, then, and then, you know, for our families that live in poverty, I just want to make sure they get access. Because I'll tell you, and I say this all the time, I have never seen a lack of potential. I've never seen a lack of capacity with our children. Our children are not smarter today than they were five years ago when I started. But the access to opportunity is what they have today. And even though our children might be uh, low-income families, they are rich in terms of their work ethic. They are rich in terms of their potential. And so every time when we give access to our children, they just shine. Was the difference, or is some of the difference, expectations compared to what it was? Because in certain environments, they don't see what they could be. It, it was expectations, and what I tell our teachers is that teachers are more, uh, some of the most powerful figures in our society. Um, all of us, you know, you know, as children, we can, we can pinpoint a teacher or teachers that change our lives, right, regardless of what our circumstances were. And what I tell our teachers is you get to show children something they can't see the potential, what's available out there. So for example, you know, uh, we had, we've had children who you know, from a young age said, I'm not going to go to college, uh, and I'm not going to go to a highly selective college. But yet, here we have children that are going right now as we speak to John Hopkins, to Stanford, uh, to uh, MIT. Maria Garcia, you know, got into, she wanted to be an engineer since she, was, you know, since she was a little girl, and we got her into MIT, one of 20 in the world that has a full-right scholarship uh, to MIT. 
And so we have children, of course, going to UTSA in the cybersecurity program. We have children getting to the most selective programs in the Alamo colleges. Uh, and so for us, it's showing children that potential and that it's possible. And of course, dealing with the barriers. So for example, uh, we've doubled scholarships for children in the last five years up to $100 million now. Um, and of course, during COVID, I am worried that many children are staying local uh, because they want to help their families and they want to work. And we have great institutions locally, but I worry about them working and, and some of them are becoming the sole providers for their families. But, but what we're doing is we're bridging that gap around opportunity. And that is, that is the commitment that we have as a district, is that every child should reach their potential, regardless of what their situation is at home. And now are you seeing younger kids, siblings, seeing the older kids go off to colleges, qualify for this, and they are more motivated? You know, what's fascinating is that we just did a, a report for Valero. Valero gave us a, a very generous grant over five years. To, so now we have college advisors at every single high school, uh, and we have college trips for, for students. And so we have uh, hundreds that go nationally on different college trips, uh, even more than that, almost a 1,000 that go on trips locally within the state of Texas because a lot of our children hadn't even left San Antonio. Right. They didn't even realize the universities like UT Austin and Texas AM College Station or, or the amazing universities uh, both north and, and across our entire state. And so what we're seeing is we expose our children. Our children actually want, you know, they actually, their aspirations build. And then when their aspirations build, and I always remind our students of this, I'm the oldest of 12. Ten of us still alive. So because I made the decisions I made of being the first to graduate from high school, first to graduate from college, first to get a, ma uh, a graduate degree, all of my family members now have either fi are either uh, finishing not only their, their uh, undergrad work, but many of them now have their graduate degrees. Uh, and so those decisions really matter. And so when older siblings get an opportunity, younger siblings mm -hmm. tend to follow in their tracks. Where did all of this come from then? You have the you have a very, I don't want to say very unique because that's redundant, but a unique background. And if you can tell people about that, you came from Mexico, went to Chicago, got into accounting, were recruited into education. How did that work and how does that play into what you're doing now? Sure. Um, so I, I think I was always meant to, so first of all, I think my mom always wanted me to be a priest and I was always meant to be a social <laughs> you're worker. You're the oldest. I was the oldest, good Catholic family. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I started in the private sector uh, working for two of the largest uh, public accounting firms in the world, uh, Deloitte & Touche and PricewaterhouseCoopers and Librand. And I got a chance to work with Fortune 500 companies and really get to see how their inner workings work. And I thought that was going to be my career. And then uh, one of our clients, the Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, was having financial trouble. They were struggling. They had gotten into the healthcare industry and just got in over their heads. And so I was recruited by the archdiocese to come and implement a turnaround plan. And at first I thought, you know, this is not really what I want to do. I had my plans already in the private sector, uh, but Cardinal Burning at the time just was so inspiring in Chicago. And so I decided to join his team uh, along with uh, many mentors that I have now. From, As a from financial officer. So I was, I was their head of finance, um, mm -hmm. but I also got involved in all their aspects of operations. So not only turning around the healthcare division, and we eventually sold it, created a big endowment uh, for the archdiocese, but also what I learned about uh, the archdiocese is just their, their dedication to the poor. So I worked in the Catholic Charities Unit, and there we created programs around domestic violence, housing, helping the homeless, uh, foster care, uh, created senior living housing. And one of the lessons that I learned from that period is that with all those great solutions, we still weren't solving the poverty issue. 
and I learned that, and when I looked at my own experience, I realized education is it was the missing uh, linchpin. And so around, uh, after about eight years of doing this work, I was recruited by Arnie Duncan, our former Secretary of Education, who, was the, who had just started in Chicago uh, back in 2003, was looking for a turnaround expert. And so then I became the, his, head of, his head of finances there in Chicago, $5 billion budget with a B. Um, and I got, and we were right in, I got it right into the beginning of the work of, of turning around that district. And more than a decade late, uh, later, that district is now uh, one of the fastest improving districts in the country and has had a lot of, a lot of the reforms that we put in place are still there today. What are some of those things that you brought from there to here? Because so, you went then to Nevada, right? And then I was able to go to Nevada. And so really, because I, I'm not a teacher uh, from training, uh, I spent a lot. Of, I wanted to spend time really supervising principals and teachers, and so I got a chance in Nevada to be uh, the number two person in Clark County, which has over 300,000 children, and then also the number two person in Washoe County in northern Nevada with 60,000 children. Eventually, became the superintendent of Washoe County, and really for me, uh, I wanted to get deep in instruction. I wanted to ensure that I knew the best strategies, and really the the lessons I brought here to San Antonio were more about uh, first of all. How, you know, just the mistakes that we made in Chicago. We created some of the best magnet programs in the country, but we tested children in. And so in, in unintended consequences were that we children got really uh, shut out of some of those programs. So coming here, I said, we're not going to do that. And here I got a chance to create programs from scratch because we didn't have very many, uh, very many magnet or choice programs. And so every program we created, we created it through an equity lens Still the best practices, so I learned what were the best practices that, were, that could be successful with every child. Um, I also uh, was fascinated here in San Antonio that with our demographics, we had two dual language schools. Whether one of them, which uh, you know, really nobody knew about at HERF, Bonham was our most popular program. And, uh, and so now, fast forward, we now have over 50 campuses with dual language programs starting from three-year-olds all the way now into the high schools. Uh, and so, and, and that was the right fit for San Antonio. So one of the other lessons I've learned is that every community is different. You need to learn its history, you need to learn the traditions, um, and figure out how to honor that history and traditions, but also, again, build expectations. What are the next five years in your plan? So for us, um, you know, I, I, when I look at the learning conditions of our children, uh, the lack of technology that we had, uh, really what I want is I want permanent solutions for that. Uh, I really believe that we have an opportunity in our community. This is an unprecedented time where there's been enough investment in our community that we can take care of this once and for all. We want to be an A district. Uh, one of the things that we saw in our projections for academics, even though we went to a B as a district, we still had a lot of low-performing schools. And so we saw in our projections for this last year that we would have reduced our low-performing schools by 70%. Um, and so our teachers, they were disappointed that we couldn't test. Uh, because start testing was canceled because they wanted to show what was possible. And so we want to continue that momentum into this year. What I want all of our families to feel is that their schools, as they're improving and getting stronger, uh, we've tripled the number of A and B schools, but every child, every neighbor deserves to have high-performing high schools. So that's the work we're doing. What about your background dating back to Mexico? Neither of your parents went beyond second grade, I understand. Right. Oldest of 12. How did you get from there to Chicago and and then to U of Illinois in uh, central Illinois and then to Chicago in finance. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, so my father came with his brother and at that time uh, they were giving uh, temporary visas just for work. While your mom and the family was in 
and Mexico. I, and I stood with my, and at that point, at that time, it was just me and two siblings uh, in Mexico. One of my siblings actually died as a baby just because of a lack of health care. We could not get her the medical need that she had. Aguascalientes? Aguascalientes. And so that crushed my, my dad and my mom. And my dad was in Chicago uh, at the time. And so that's when my dad decided we just need, we needed to stay. Uh, he, he wanted to bring us to the United States. So, so he brought us uh, when I was turning uh, six years old. Uh, and it was a shock for me, a culture shock for me. A good Catholic family. Eventually our family grew. And so, like I said, I became the oldest of 12 over time. And, and really... Um, Tough part of Chicago? Where were you in Chicago? We were in the inner city of Chicago. I was in a neighborhood very similar to when I go to the west side or I go to the south side. Uh, very similar neighborhood. A lot of gang violence. Uh, our, my high school had... I started with 700 ninth graders. Only 170 of us graduated. Only half of those students went to college. And those students were all in, in honors programs. And so one of the things I learned early, early on is what happens when you get, you know, I had the privilege to have at least access to high quality programming and what happens to those who do not. And so one of the things that I spend as a hobby is I literally look for any student who went to Benito Juarez High School who graduated or was supposed to graduate in 1987, that was my graduation. It is literally something that I look, I wanna know what happened to those individuals because I really believe that it was a lack of access to opportunity that caused those children to drop out. Mm -hmm. And so that's what drives my work here in San Antonio. Do you go back to uh, reunions? We do, we do. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, like I said, only half of us, only half of the children went to college. A lot of my colleagues really look, you know, they admire me, but, you know, for me, I'm always interested in what could have happened, right? Mm -hmm. could, could, more support, could more support be given? And, and what's fascinating here in San Antonio I have a, I've had a lot of conversations with families, a lot of alumni, a lot of pride in our high schools. And it's fascinating when I talk to them, I say, well, tell me about these times, right? And so I'll talk to a graduate from Lanier, a graduate from Fox Tech, a graduate from Jefferson. And they'll tell me, well, you know, during these times, the 70s and 80s, if you were going to go to college, everybody knew you had to go to Jefferson or maybe Brackenridge. If you weren't going to go to college, maybe you went to Lanier, maybe you went to Fox Tech. And it was that blatant and that direct. And it's fascinating when they see what we're doing now, how we have college advisors. We're sending children on college trips all over the state, all over the country. They said, my goodness, I wish I would have had that kind of opportunity. I wish. And this is even some of our more successful alumni. They literally say, God, I didn't have any of those opportunities. Uh, the fact that we're helping students get scholarships. And so, of course, they want to be part of it and they want to help. And so we're, we're through our foundation, we're finding ways for them to mentor children. There was a uh, article written, I believe it was by 74 million. And then there were some articles that critiqued that that talked about the socioeconomic integration, but not the racial integration. Was that anything that you looked at specifically that you wanted to change down the road, or is that, is that not a focus? So one of, the, one of the lessons that I have learned, and I think this is hopefully a society lesson, um, me being an immigrant, being somebody who grew up in poverty, uh, I thought I understood racism. I really did. And coming to San Antonio, it was interesting to see for the first time, you know, since I've been in the U.S., to come to a community that was dominated by, by our Latino culture. One of, the, one of the things that I've learned over, you know, especially over these last few years and especially in these recent times is that we need to continue to pay attention to racial dynamics and racial discrimination. Uh, in our district, we have uh, over 90% of our children are Latino, uh, about 6% are African American. And so one of the lessons that I've learned, uh, and, and I always tell people, look, we learn every day, right? We're lifelong learners, but the issues of racism, the issues of historical racism are very, very strong. 
uh, and that's in every place, including our district. And so one of the things that we're really focused on now is how do we ensure that all of our children are being successful? Because our district is getting better, but I will not, we will not tolerate for gaps to be within our district. And our African-American children right now actually do have a gap with the rest of our children, and that's not acceptable. And so we will, you know, that is something that we're actually developing uh, strategies around. And what I tell our schools is that a lot of it, I believe, is just re being customized and supporting those children. Um, the good news is our overall district is getting better. Uh, the good news is overall our children are doing better. But again, we cannot allow uh, our children, whether they're special needs children or African-American children, to fall behind. This is, by the way, a national issue. This is not an issue for San not just San Antonio ISD. It is in every district. But there's no excuse for that. After World War II, when they changed the laws in Texas and they started consolidating school districts, partly along racial lines, but partly along economic lines, um, since then they've been talk off and on about consolidating school districts more, especially as some have failed. Um, do you see that happening down the road in, in you, Texas? You know, there's always a lot of conversation about whether districts should consolidate. Is there too many districts? I mean, San Antonio is one of the few cities in the country that doesn't have one district for its city. Uh, there's only a few in, in the country. I think uh, Phoenix, Arizona, they have, there's a little bit of that as well. But most cities have their own, their own districts. So there's advantages to that. I, what I would tell our community is what I concerns me more than just having multiple districts is the inequity in property values. So, for example, I talked uh, talk to Eduardo Hernandez from Edgewood quite a bit. He and I, we get together every month. And one of the things that, that I see is that Edgewood, for example, if they wanted to uh, implement, uh, they wanted to do a, a bond election, they, 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 they could not raise enough money uh, because their base is not high enough to, to do everything that we can do in our district. And we just started catching up because Northside and Northeast have always had that benefit because of economic development in the North. And so what I worry about is the lack of equity around property values. And so I, what I would wish for right now, and I've shared this with some of our legislators, that there was a way to all of us to uh, benefit from the property values in the city of San Antonio. So why should my residents, um, you know, not take being able to take advantage of the entire city, uh, whether you live in Edgewood or whether you live in Northside or Northeast, um, that's what creates inequities, and, and, and it's very visible because it's they, in buildings. It's they've talked about that for decades with the Robin Hood plan and even back into the 80s, and the Edgewood School District and San Antonio School District's lawsuits back in the 60s and 70s. Do you think that has a chance in the future? I, I, you know, and, and again, it's going to take you know very expert individuals that can really figure this out, but I really do believe that it really is about having one unified uh, property tax base that all of us could benefit from. And I think that, to me, is even more important than consolidating school districts. Uh, what is the most important thing you're worried about now as superintendent for the next five, ten years in San Antonio after getting through the pandemic? Or can you, can you even look that far ahead right now with such a focus on the pandemic and getting back to school? So, you know, one of the things my board president said it best um, if things just go back to normal, that's not good enough. You know, pre-COVID, uh, things weren't that great. Our district was getting better, but many of our neighbors were still suffering. Uh, even though there was great economic, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of economic activity going on in our community, there were still many people that weren't participating. And so what I, my real hope over the next decade is that uh, we, we partner with others to really look at how do we create more economic development, how do we invest in our neighborhoods. Um, our goal is to be in a district. I have, with, the, with the level of uh, 
of, of excitement that I see from my teachers and my staff. I have no doubt we will get there. Uh, our direction, our results are going up only in one direction. They're all going up uh, in every aspect. And more and more of our children are being able to benefit from uh, better opportunities in high school with dual credit, uh, uh, having more college access. We're seeing all, you know, scholarships have gone up. Uh, college applications have never been higher. College acceptance rates have never been higher. So for us, uh, in, in my younger grades, again, they're going to get stronger over time. But for me, I, I want us to stay on this path, but I want us to address these issues of inequity. Uh, and, and it's going to take the city. It's going to take the county. It's going to take us partnering with the private sector, with the business community. Because uh, as I look at these neighborhoods, even now, when I walk through the west side or I walk through different parts of the south side and east side, I still see neighborhoods that don't have sidewalks. I still see neighborhoods that flood whenever it rains. I still see houses that are either falling apart or they don't have AC, uh, and they don't have AC, they don't have central air. In today's times, when we're hitting 100 degree weather in San Antonio, um, and our families are having to be at home because of this COVID virus, and they don't, and their children have to learn from 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 these homes, the inequities couldn't be more stark. We're one of the three fastest growing economies in the country in San Antonio, but the most segregated according to the latest numbers. How do you, how do you fight that as, as on the lowest part of that totem pole in San Antonio? So, you know, one is, is to continue to advocate for my, for my families and students. I, I feel that I'm blessed to, uh, to have the background that I have to understand poverty, but now I'm in a position where I can speak about it. Uh, and we walk the talk. In other words, academics are getting strong. We're helping more and more children uh, do better and reach their potential. We're, hope, you know, we're hopeful that our community will support us in investing in our facilities and our technology, and we'll be able to create jobs in that process. And so we want to walk the talk. We don't want to just be uh, sort of you know, complaining from the side. We want, we want to show our community that we're going to be active, whether it's providing meals, whether it's providing technology, closing the digital divide, working with the city. Um, so, so for me, you know, I want our community to know that we're a district of action, that we'll be there to support them, and, and I really believe that San Antonio can do it. I think San Antonio is one of the few cities in the country where there's enough collaboration, where there's enough people who I think at this time want change that we can make it happen. I think it's just a matter of us just doing it. Last quick question or two. I know you have, to, you have a lot of work to do, but uh, Patty Radel had talked about that you don't want the pobrecito attitude, that, oh, the poor people in that district, we should help them and kind of a pity kind of thing. What do you tell people about that, coming from a background in poverty? So one of the things that I'll tell you is that, uh, uh, that I know about our children here in San Antonio, they're not looking for a handout. None of my families are looking for a handout. In fact, I see a lot of pride in our community, again, a great work ethic. What they want is just access to opportunity. They just want support, uh, and that takes resources. That takes us believing in them. It takes us not judging them. You know, one of the things I'll tell our community is, is go and Google uh, 60 Minutes videos back from the 70s on hunger in San Antonio. And what I want them to listen for is some of our community leaders at that time, how they were judging our families, how they were blaming our families. And to me, you know, it just, just having that historical perspective is one of the things that I've seen that has happened in our community. Instead of us saying, look, how do we create opportunity? How do we really improve the living conditions of our, of our, of our, neighbor, of our families? How do we give them you know, better paying jobs? How do we invest in our, in our communities so that uh, we have better economic development, so that it's more even? And so for me, you know, I, I say this all the time, our children are not looking for any handouts. What they want is opportunity, and who wouldn't? 
Last question. A lot of people have had COVID hobbies, things that they have developed when they have to be at home. Now you have kids. I'm not sure the ages. They're young, right? Nine and six. What have you been able to do to uh, deal with all the stress that you have and the changes that you've had? Have you, have you made any differences in your routine? So, you know, uh, this was something uh, my board and I, we, we, we had a really nice workshop with somebody who, who just supports us uh, in general, and her name is Tracy Goss. And Tracy asked this question, and she works with a lot of the businesses here in San Antonio around leadership development. And Tracy Goss asked us a question. She said, during these times of COVID, are you living or just surviving? And so she's challenged all of us. She said, if you're living then do something that, that maybe you stopped doing before when the virus hit. And so one of the things that I love to do is I love to walk. I just love, my wife and I, we love, we, we take advantage of many of the parks in San Antonio, many of the trails, we love to walk. And we're trying to get our children to love to walk as well. You know, it's a little harder. Uh, but we, so what I started doing again after, Tracy, after that session with Tracy was we, I started walking every morning. So every morning now I get up no matter, even if I have to come in at work early, uh, I just, I, I make it a point to walk every morning and just to, again, just, just to be out there and living. I think right now during COVID times, so many of our families are anxious. So many of our families have fears. They're legitimate and we need to acknowledge that. Uh, but we got to make sure that we're not just surviving. We got to make sure that we're living, uh, especially during these times, because 12 months from now, I hope, uh, COVID will look different. It'll, it'll still be part of our lives, but it'll be very different. And I, and I think we need to ensure that during this period of time, we don't let fear just, uh, just literally uh, make us prisoners, especially when we have so many families that, you know, that don't have good living conditions. Uh, we want to make sure that fear doesn't become our, our, you know, it doesn't imprison us. Very well said. Thank you very much, Pedro Martinez. Really appreciate all your time and good luck during the pandemic. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.